Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. Don't worry, I'll have you out here by 4 o'clock. Verse 20, please. After all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, who were not of the sons of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the sons of Israel were unable to completely eliminate, from them Solomon conscripted forced laborers as they are to this day. But Solomon did not make slaves of the sons of Israel, for they were men of war, his servants, his commanders, his charioteers, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were in charge of Solomon's work, 550 who ruled over the people doing the work. As soon as Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house which Solomon had built for her, he then built the Milo. Now three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord, burning incense with them on the altar which was before the Lord, so he finished the house. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Ezion-Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with his fleet, sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and received 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. In verse 24, we are told that Solomon's wife came up to the house that he had built for her. Now, in 2 Chronicles 8.11, Solomon says she could not live in David's palace because the ark of the Lord was there and it was holy. Now, later on, such concern for that kind of purity is going to be ironic when the king begins to worship his wife's false gods. It also says that Solomon built ships. Now, although the Jews fished on the Sea of Galilee, when it came to the open ocean, they shied away from any kind of seafaring activity. Here and only here in the Bible do we see a navy being assembled. It took approximately three years for Solomon to get 420 talents of gold through his naval venture into India. However, according to the figures in Scripture, David gathered over 100,000 talents of gold and only... A three-year period. 
In other words, conquest under David far exceeded commerce under Solomon. Now, why would I bring that out? I suggest that the riches of the Lord are not uncovered or discovered in the boardroom, but on the battlefield. In Old Testament days, faith had to be exercised by God's people in battles against the Philistines and the Canaanites. Now today, we don't fight Philistines and Canaanites. We fight things like finances and cash flow. But the battle is just as real. And just as the Philistines and Canaanites were overcome by faith, so finances and cash flow must also be dealt with by faith. And while I'm not suggesting we have a careless or a reckless attitude, I do know that if we step out in faith, God will always supply our needs. Maybe not our greeds, but always our needs. Let's move into chapter 10. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon in relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with riddles. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage, with camels carrying balsam oil and a very large quantity of gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke to him about everything that was in her heart. And Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was concealed from the king that he did not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built and the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters in their attire, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings which he offered at the house of the Lord, she was breathless. Then she said to the king, it was a true story that I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. But I did not believe these stories until I came with my own eyes and saw it all. And behold, the half of it was not reported to me. You have exceeded in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. Although the location of Sheba is not certain, most scholars locate it somewhere in the area, area of modern Yemen. That's a journey of about 1,500 miles over land to Israel. She had heard of the glories of this distant kingdom. And she had trouble believing that everything that she heard was actually true. So she decided to see for herself, traveling across the Middle East to visit Solomon. Now, typically, someone like the Queen of Sheba would have sent emissaries to Solomon's court. Instead, she traveled more than a thousand miles through the desert to meet this king in person. The Queen of Sheba asked Solomon the hardest question she knew, and Solomon answered every one of them. Here's how the poet Robert Browning described the king's response to the queen. She proves him with hard questions before she has reached the middle. He, smiling, supplies the end and solves them riddle by riddle. You know, sooner or later, everyone who follows the queen's example will learn the truth about Christ, just as she learned the truth about Solomon. And if we are wise, we will be curious enough to get good, honest answers 
to all of life's most ultimate questions. Well, like what? Why is there something rather than nothing? Is there a God? And if there is, then what is the meaning of my existence? Now, God is not intimidated by such hard and testing questions, nor is he unable to answer them. But we must come with the right kind of skepticism, not the kind that refuses to believe anything at all, but the kind that is committed to believing only what is true. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the king of all kings. Will you come for yourself to see what he says, if that is really true? The Queen of Sheba traveled over a thousand miles to find out if what Solomon said was actually right. I wonder, what are we willing to do to find out the truth about Jesus? If anything, the reports about him are far more remarkable since he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And according to the good news of the gospel, Jesus died on the cross to pay for the sins of everyone who believes in him and then rose from the dead to give them eternal life. If that is true, it is the most important thing that has ever happened. And if we are not sure if that is true or not, we should at least be curious enough to find out. Verse 8, please. Blessed are your men, and blessed are these servants of yours who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you to put you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loves Israel forever. He made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very large amount of balsam oil and precious stones. Never again did such a large quantity of balsam oil come into that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. And the ships of Hiram as well, who brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir a very great number of almug trees and precious stones. The king made from the almug tree supports for the house of the Lord and the king's house, and lyres and harps for the singers. Such almug trees have not come in again, nor have they been seen to this day. And King Solomon granted the queen of Sheba everything she desired, whatever she requested, besides what he gave her in proportion to his royal bounty. Then she departed and went to her own land together with her servants." Verse 2 tells us that she brought extravagant gifts. And that should remind us what the prophets said about the Savior and the prophecies concerning the coming Christ. Listen to how Isaiah put it. He wrote, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. A multitude of camels shall come to you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, and those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. This was one of the many specific promises and prophecies that was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. 
the wise men from the east came and to do something more than simply to worship the newborn king. They also brought gifts of frankincense and gold, which was the wealth of kings that God had promised would come on camels from the east. This was the promise of the nations that Isaiah was talking about, that they would bring their treasure to this newborn king. It says Solomon gave the queen everything that she wanted, not just his wisdom, but also parts of his wealth. He sent her home with a bountiful blessing of his kingdom. But you know what? An even greater blessing awaits her on the last of all days when Jesus will come into his everlasting kingdom. Then the Queen of Sheba is going to receive the blessing of eternal life. We know this because Jesus explicitly stated that she would be present at the final judgment, standing with the righteous. Jesus said to his own people in his generation, who wanted him to give them some sort of sign to prove that he was the Christ. They wondered whether it was worthwhile to follow Jesus. He told them these words. He said, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and will condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater one than Solomon stands before you. The queen of Sheba is also a wonderful example to follow in coming to have a saving faith in Christ. She moved from unbelief to the kingdom of God. And at the same time, she shows us how to respond to the king of that kingdom. You see, the queen of Sheba did something more than simply feel faint in the presence of Solomon's superior wisdom, or just to speak words to him of praise. She also did something tangible. Therefore, in the story of Solomon, the queen of Sheba, we see how to respond to Jesus. And it is to do this, it is to honor his breathtaking wisdom, worshiping his royal majesty, and offering him all of our treasure. But today, instead of having camels laden with gold, we give the treasures of our tithe, our talents, and our time. Now, of course, if you do have bricks of gold lying around, you can put them back there at the offering box. We will take them. But we should give even more honor and find more joy in Christ for as wise as Solomon was, he did not even know a percentage of what Jesus knows. Talk about breathtaking. The Bible says that in him is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know what that means? That means Jesus knows everything there is to know about creation. From the smallest subatomic particle that's not even been yet discovered to the largest black hole in outer space. Jesus has total knowledge of the physical universe. Now consider his remarkable wisdom in putting the earth exactly where it is. It's close enough to the sun to give us light and warmth, but not so close that we burn up. 
unless you live in Florida (laughs) or South Carolina. (laughs) Consider the breathtaking wisdom that Jesus demonstrated in everything that he taught us. Think of his incredible parables, pregnant with meaning, like the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son. Think of his provocative teaching in the Sermon of the Mount or his wise words about the future in the Olivet Discourse. Every word Jesus spoke is full of divine wisdom. So, we can also this morning honor the wisdom of God by trusting what he is doing in our lives right now. I don't know about you. But sometimes it's easy to think that God could or should be doing a little better than he is in managing our affairs. When we consider our financial situation or our work situation or our family situation, it can be tempting to think that we know some wiser way for him to guide our lives. Now this too is breathtaking Only it's breathtaking in its arrogance. If Jesus is the all-wise God of creation and salvation, then we can honor his wisdom by fully trusting his plan for our lives. How much happier we would be if we would learn to believe in the wisdom of our king without doubting, complaining, or second-guessing his will. Verse 14, please. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That should have been a problem right there. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants and all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the country, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. And he made 300 small shields of beaten gold, using three minas of gold on each shield, and the king put them in the house of the timber of Lebanon. Moreover, the king made a large throne of ivory and overlaid it with fine gold. There were six steps to the throne and a round top to the throne at its back. An armrest on each side of the seat and two lions standing beside the armrest. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps on the one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. Now all King Solomon's drinking utensils were of gold. And all the utensils of the house of the timber of Lebanon were of pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered as amounting to anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had the ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram ships. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish would come carrying gold and silver, ivory, monkeys, and peacocks. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in wealth and wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the attention of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. And they were bringing everyone a gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, balsam oil, horses and mules, so much year by year. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. 
Also, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's merchants acquired them from Kew for a price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans. Every king needs a throne to serve as a symbol of his royal supremacy. But the seat of Solomon's throne was the envy of emperors. Made of ivory and then overlaid with pure gold, his throne was completely unique. And there was nothing else like it anywhere in the world. Now the key word in this passage is the word gold. And it is mentioned no less than ten times. The Bible wants to impress upon us the splendid glories of Solomon's golden kingdom. But we all need to keep this in its proper biblical context. Remembering how quickly earthly glory can pass away. And how easy it can be for gold to become our God. As valuable as it is, gold cannot compare with the priceless treasure of knowing and doing the will of God and believing the gospel of Christ in His death and resurrection for our salvation. All these things are in the scriptures where we find for our souls the true and priceless treasure who is Jesus Christ. All the gold in the world is not worth even a single ounce of the saving truth that leads to eternal life in Him. If Jesus is the treasure of treasures, then the poorest sinner who has a Bible and believes its saving message is wealthier this morning than the richest man on this earth. Why? Because gold cannot satisfy the human soul. Although there are many things that money can buy, the precious things of God are not for sale. Whatever else it may be able to do for us, our earthly gold cannot comfort us, forgive us, or save us. You see, the limitations of wealth are important to understand because many people do put their confidence in earthly treasures. Despite many biblical warnings against the mortal danger of false worship, they bow down to their silver and to their gold. Now we face the same temptation to bow down to golden idols by trying to worship the things the money can buy. Some people covet golden jewelry. They feel a little better when they can flash a little bling. Other people find their significance in homes or automobiles and those kind of big ticket items. Some people enjoy the buzz they get from having the latest technology or for, from wearing something new. And make no mistake, at the right price and at the right time, and for the right reasons, any of those purchases can be legitimate. But whether it's a gold coin or a gold credit card, 
The danger is we will try to find our comfort and security in something that money can buy. Now, one practical way to resist our own golden temptations is to make the kind of comparisons to gold that the Bible makes. Reminding ourselves that earthly treasures is not worth nearly as much as the Holy Scripture or by the spiritual wisdom that they bring. I love my new furniture, we might say, or I would love to have some new furniture, but that should not be as precious to us as the time we can spend this afternoon in the Word of God. We may say, I sure wish I had a new one of those when we see, when we see some flashy new product in a magazine or on a computer screen. But why should I waste my time wanting one of those when I know that the last thing I bought to satisfy me ended up letting me down? I call it the new car smell syndrome. You know how good that new car smells when you first buy it? But when the payments start rolling in, it can take on a different odor. Did you know you can actually buy new car smell air freshener? Just hang one of those babies on your old jalopy and save yourself a pile of money. Here at Calvary Chapel, we exegete scripture and give free financial advice. Yeah. <laughs> but back to the text. Unless we are making these kind of comparisons all the time, we'll be in constant danger of turning earthly gold into an ungodly idol. And we will forget that the best way we can spend and invest our money is to invest it in people and ministries that spread the gospel. So remember, the treasures of this world are not the glories of the kingdom of God. Do not trust your gold or your earthly treasure to satisfy your soul. It can't. It was never meant to. And remember this as well. When we die, we're going to lose all the gold that we had. We may well lose it sooner than that, as many people do. But even if we manage to amass a large fortune and manage to hold on to the very end until we're old and gray, we will still have to leave it all behind on that day that we die. Charles Spurgeon told a story about a ship owner who was asked about the state of his soul. Soul, the man replied incredulously, I have no time to take care of my soul. I have enough to do just taking care of all my ships. But as Spurgeon pointed out, the man was not too busy to die, which he did one week later. Thus passes the glories of this world. Is there a better example of this truth than King Solomon? How quickly we're going to see his glory pass away. In 1 Kings 14, we will read how Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. Thus, the very gold that made Solomon's kingdom so glorious eventually ended back in Egypt. 
Of course, Solomon was dead by then anyway. He had already left all of his earthly treasure behind, as everyone does. Thus passes the glory of the world, as Solomon knew it would. In Ecclesiastes 2.18, Solomon wrote this. He lamented the having to give every, leaving everything behind to the man who will become after me. And he says, and who knows where that man will be a wise man or a fool. As it happened, Solomon's worst fears were realized. He left his treasures to his fool of a son, Rehoboam, who quickly proceeded to lose all of it. Now, if we say this about Solomon, we should also be prepared to say it about ourselves and our own golden treasures. For you see, my friends, they too are passing away. I think it takes the work of the Holy Spirit to strip away all the confidence from ourselves and enable us to put all of our trust in the grace of God instead. So it's not surprising that someone as wealthy as Solomon failed to be fully obedient to the law of God. Any more than it would be surprising for rich people like us to get caught in the temptations of daily life. You may be thinking, I'm not rich. Did you know that compared to billions of people on this earth, the fact that none of us had to be worried about eating lunch today puts us in the rich category. Did you know that if you have a bank savings account with any money in it whatsoever, you are in the top 5% in terms of prosperity and people on this earth. Gold is one of the most dangerous temptations in the world. You see, the more we have, the easier it is to think we have everything that we need apart from God. The way King Solomon kept accumulating more and more gold is a sign that he was starting to give in to this danger. You see, the law of Moses explicitly told the king not to do this, not to acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And maybe it's hard to decide exactly how much gold is too much. But for Solomon, it's probably somewhere between his first and 500th golden shield. You see, the desire to hoard was starting to take control of his heart. What about our hearts? Have we learned to say enough is enough? Or do we continue to think that more and more things will one day satisfy us? In verse 29, Solomon is now in the exporting business. To put it bluntly, King Solomon had become an arms dealer in the Middle East. As a middleman between the Egyptians and the Syrians, importing and exporting chariots, which is like tanks today, buying, high, buying low and selling high, Solomon had made a huge profit, profit. Yet in the long run, this too is very foolish. Because in later days, the Syrians and the Egyptians both attacked the Israelites. Do you know what that means? Solomon was supplying his enemies with the weapons for Israel's own destruction. By the time we get into chapter 11 next week, Solomon is going to be spiritually bankrupt.
But the warning signs of his eventual downfall are already obvious in chapter 10 in his misguided quest for more and more gold as well as his misguided confidence in earthly power. So as we finish up today, that was Solomon. What about us? What are the warning signs that we are headed towards our own personal downfall? Maybe it's the endless quest for more and more. As if getting something that we do not have right now would finally satisfy our souls. Maybe it's in the confidence we place in our money to secure our future or the skills to guarantee our success. Now, it would be easy to excuse ourselves by saying, well, everybody else is doing it. But before we make excuses about investing in the wrong kinds of treasure, we should listen to the warning of the Apostle John in 1 John 2.17, where he wrote these words. The world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This was John's way of saying, this world is passing away along with everything that is in it. So do not be overly impressed by earthly gold and wealth. Do not make the wrong spiritual choices that can ruin your soul. And do not miss the real glory that is waiting for everyone who trusts in Christ alone for salvation. As John Newton wrote in the end of his hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, in contrasting earthly possessions with heavenly glory, he wrote, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Pray with me. And Father, I admit in front of these people, it is so easy to want more and more and more, even though it's never satisfied me. Only you can bring satisfaction, O oh Lord. And I pray that wherever any one of us are in this room, that you would draw us to yourself. You would be that those riches that we would really want to have more than anything that this old world could offer. Because like John said, Lord, it is quickly passing away. And so, Father, open our eyes. Let us not fool ourselves. And let us come to you. We ask in your name. Amen.